We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truth behind it. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Ooh, it's good. Hi, Jonah Lanto. Hello, Don Palumbo. Hmm, We're good intro. Midwest Murder. Special thanks to Eric Michael Anderson, who wrote and recorded that intro tune along with doctors Diana and Eric Anderson. Big thanks. Uh, things are going great. This, this is, I, I think the plan is this is our fourth episode, Don. People are pretty excited so far. What are people saying about Midwest murder? Well, um, some awesome things for one. So super cool. Those of you um, who've left us reviews, uh, thank you. It means it means the world. So keep reviewing. Uh, entertainingly informative true crime. Impeccable conversational chemistry between the hosts contributes to superbly suspenseful storytelling that keeps me captivated across entire episodes. Highly recommend. Which, uh, that was a review left by Nortka, N-O-R-T-C-A, if I did not say that properly. Whoever you are, wherever you yeah. are, Nortka, we appreciate we you. We appreciate that. That's so awesome. And Chelsea Ray G writes, true crime with a Midwest twist. I'm a big true crime podcast fan, and this one did not disappoint. Solid research, entertaining banter, and chilling and interesting stories. Looking forward to more Don and Jonah. That's a good little pick-me-up. So Thanks, good. guys. Yeah, thank you. We, so We appreciate you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, please take a minute to, to review us on uh, iTunes, Midwest Murder on iTunes, um, and, and thank you so very much. We, we really, really appreciate that. That's how we are able to become a trending podcast uh, and... and how we get our, our name out there and get these these amazing stories out there as well. Yes. Thank you, everybody. Midwest Murder, iTunes, review us. It, it'll be great. This episode is brought to you by Nomad Design House. Nomad Design House did the Midwest Murder logo. It's obviously amazing. And uh, Alex there is a goofy, quirky, design-loving freelance graphic designer who only wants to create designs for you, her client, and only you. She considers her job to be simple, to give you something that is functional, sustainable, that will fit your needs as a timeless design. And she, she nailed it for us, and, and she can do the same for you. That's Nomad Design House. Find them on Facebook. Um, again, this is Midwest Murder, and I'm taking us back to 1985. That was just a wee one. Yeah, we, we like the 80s so far in this show. And what's what's happening in 1985? Well, this would be the first time governments would start screening blood donations for AIDS. Of course, we're in the height of the AIDS pandemic. I believe Reagan has sworn in for a second time in this year, and still hadn't considered it no. uh, legit. No, nope, yeah. didn't didn't think AIDS was a was a big problem. CDs are introduced. No. Talk about a game changer. Yeah, the terrorist hijacking of TWA Flight 847. Mm. The Live Aid concerts, including the legendary performance by Queen. Oh, yeah. 
The Unabomber kills his first victim. A second bomb is intercepted and diffused. And bigger than bigger than bigger than big, in 1985, fam, Nintendo releases. Mm-hmm. What are uh, that was hey, awesome? What are what are Mario's uh, overalls made of? <laughs> I don't know. What is the dad jokes? Dad joke incoming. Denim, denim, denim. <laughs> That's perfect. Okay, I'm sorry. And 1985 would be a year of record-setting cold, which brings us to the small town of Minot, North Dakota. Approximately 35, 36,000 people, including the Air Force Base. Fun fact about Minot, it is known as the Magic City. It was founded in 1887 when the Great Northern Railway set up camp for the winter and... As if by magic, this little town of tents grew into a bustling population of 5,000 people in just five months. And the, the train railway here is, is, is pretty relevant. We're, we're going just outside of Minot. This is going to be in the area of the Gavin Yards. Gavin Yards was a significant uh, major freight yard for Burlington Northern. And in the region was home to Charles and Cora Abernathy, who were married for nearly 50 years. The two met on a blind date arranged by a close friend and were married in Minot in 1939. These were true salt-of-the-earth people, like so many of our prairie-born and prairie-raised grandpas and grandmas. Charles was a truck driver and a teamster, and the couple worked and owned several dairy farms. True to their roots, the Abernathys always gave back to their communities— Charlie served on the Nedros Township Board, and both he and his wife drove school bus. 50 years. 50 years. They raised three kids out there. That's incredible. They lived in a single-story ranch-style home just a few miles from the Gavin Yard outside Minot, where they kept a featured, they kept a featured large garden, which was one of their favorite hobbies as retired farmers. They were also horse enthusiasts. Charlie retired in 1972, and the couple spent time raising and showing hackney ponies. In fact, Charlie and his white burrow, Jack, were in many parades in the area. Hmm. What, uh, what is Gavin Yard? So the, uh, the, the Gavin Yard is a major freight yard for Burlington, so it's a massive train freight yard. Oh, sure. Um, and that's, that's the particular name of this one outside of Minot. Uh, so when I, I was looking at, uh, in researching this case, and you see the photos of Charlie and Cora Abernathy. And I, I, I can't help but see like my own grandparents or mm-hmm. yours. Right. Uh, the, the, the grandparents you know and love, they look like good, kind people. Really like the type of folks who dress in their Sunday best, stop in at the truck stop after church, and then long after their meal was finished, sit and visit sipping coffee with their friends and neighbors, or really anybody who wanted to have a sure. conversation. It's kind of what you can hope for, what you hope for, uh, you know, uh, being a grandma and grandpa, completely, right? Completely. Yeah. Completely. The early months of 1985 would see an Arctic wave of bone chilling cold wash over the Midwest, the kind of cold temperatures that even the most resolute North Dakotans hide indoors from. On the night of Friday, February 8th, the winds were howling at 25 miles per hour and snow was piling and drifting around the Abernathy home. Against this frozen winter darkness, Cora Abernathy is recovering from hip surgery. Her devoted husband, Charles, has made supper and gotten Cora back into bed where she can rest while he does dishes and tidies up the kitchen. Took care of his wife. She had hip surgery and and was, was really essentially 
an invalid at that time, needed, needed help with a walker, wasn't moving very quick, and he had no problem. He took care of her. He made suppers. Uh, he helped clean up. Uh, the, the, their, their daughter-in-law would often come over on the weekends, cook them some meals. They would hang out. Um, you seem like a sweet couple, you know, just absolutely. Yeah. And Charles has arranged their large console television so that she can watch it from the bedroom. Well, that is no easy task in 1985. Think about that for a second. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal because every Friday night, both Charlie and Cora look forward to their favorite TV shows, Dallas and Falcon Crest. Oh, who didn't? Which they Dang. start, basically, I think they start like right after Wheel of Fortune. So uh, just before 7 p.m., their son James would call, as he often did, to check on his aging parents. Him and his dad would talk about his mom's appointments, the horses and farm chores, and the worsening weather. Far from town, out on the open prairie, one of the last things Charles tells his son before saying goodbye is that he can see a vehicle driving very slowly down the wintry gravel road. Little did James know this would be the final conversation he would have with his father. Just after 8 p.m., Charlie Abernathy is about to help his wife out of bed and, and into the living room so they can watch television together when he is surprised by a knock on the door. He sees two men, Kevin Austin, who is wearing a ski jacket and baseball cap. The other, wearing an Air Force coat and Confederate rebel cap, is Calvin Noonan. They're standing at the winter door, standing at the front door in the winter darkness. Now, I don't know about you, Don, but I think a lot of people, maybe most people, would not answer their door to two strangers hunched and furtive against the cold. Mm, that's not what we do here, though, especially out, I, I mean, way out there. We, right. It's, it's winter. You're thinking somebody probably needs help. I mean, today but, I wouldn't. No, today, but, but in 85? But in 85, heck yeah. It's just, ah. Oh. But as you said, Char- Charlie Abernathy is a product of his time and place, and the code of North Dakota nice is very real to the people who live here. No doubt Charlie's first thought was, well, these fellas must be in trouble of some kind. I'll see what I can do to help. Because he, that's, that's just what, I mean. what you do. Right. He opens the door and Kevin Austin asks if he can use the phone. Says he wants to call up Bob Smith because he can't find his house. Bullshit. Charlie Abernathy doesn't register Bob Smith as a random, likely made-up name and just says, sure, you can come on in and use the phone. No problem. The two men follow Charlie into the kitchen, neat and tidy, warm and cozy. He shows him the phone and sits down in his chair. Kevin Austin picks up the phone book, but doesn't begin to scan for Bob Smith's number. He's just kind of holding the book. Charlie looks at him a bit confused as the two men stare at one another. Then suddenly, Kevin looks at Calvin, pulls out a pistol, and says, are we going to do this? Are you ready to go for it? How terrified he must have been. You know, it's him and his wife, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, wow. Um, Charlie opens his his eyes open in fear. What do you guys want? And he tells him, he tells him, you can have anything you want. Kevin Austin advances on Charlie. Well, you've got to have some money here, he says. Charlie starts for his wallet, then stops. He stands up, walks back to the bedroom to get his wife's purse, with Kevin Austin following him. Charlie brings the purse back into the kitchen and sets it on the table. Kevin Austin says to Calvin Noonan, well, get the money out of there. Calvin Noonan dumps her purse out on the table and takes the money to a little over 300 bucks, which was cashed from Charlie's pension check. 
uh, and placed in his wife's purse earlier that week. It's not as much money as he wants. And Kevin Austin presses Charlie for more. And Charlie says, we're old people. We don't have much money. You have more money, Kevin Austin snarls at him. No, I'm, I'm afraid we don't have any more, mar- any more money, Charlie begins. But he's interrupted by an increasingly frantic Kevin Austin. God damn it. I know you've got more money. Frustrated and losing control, Kevin Austin orders Charlie Abernathy into the living room, forces him into an armchair, and continues to demand money. Charlie continues to reply there isn't any more money in the house. Feeling the situation getting more and more out of hand, Calvin Noonan says to Kevin Austin, let's get the hell out of here. We can still get the hell out of here. Let's just get the hell out of here. Kevin Austin's rage builds at a furious rate. It's only minutes before he's completely out of control. He alternates between yelling at Calvin Noonan and demanding money from Charlie, getting no satisfaction from either. Kevin Austin lets loose a tornado of violence in the living room. With Charlie's back to him, Austin pulls his gun out, presses it square to the back of Charlie's head, and pulls the trigger. Charlie Abernathy would never see the shot coming. The sulfur stench of gunfire and silence hang in the air of the small, plain farmhouse living room. As Charlie Abernathy sags, dead in his chair, Kevin Austin turns on Calvin Noonan and says, Well, now it's half and half. You've got to go get her. She's back in the bedroom. Frightened and shaken, Calvin Noonan pleads again, Let's just get the hell out of here. No, replies Kevin Austin. She's seen me. We're going half and half on this all the way. He drags Noonan into the bedroom where Cora Abernathy lies immobile and terrified in her bed. Unable to control himself, as soon as they enter the bedroom, Kevin Austin grabs Calvin Noonan's pistol and shoots Cora in the head. It's not a clear shot, and Cora Abernathy writhes in her bed. Kevin Austin then turns to Calvin Noonan and says, She isn't dead, and it's 50-50 on it. And Calvin Noonan takes his pistol back and begins firing. Closing his eyes, he finishes out the rounds remaining in the gun. So this disgusting... These, I mean, numerous examples of uh, just I, I can't, like I can't even I can't even put a word to it for three hundred and twenty dollars, you know, and not that there would be any amount of money that would make that okay, but but that's I mean that's it, it's so little, it's so pathetic, it's so desperate, it, so, it's it, it's so unnecessary, it's hard to swallow. It's, well, it's it, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, so. What I wonder is, so Kevin Austin, Calvin Newnham, um, they shoot you. I mean, you did a great job of explaining and, and putting it in perspective for me. I mean, I felt like I was listening to my grandparents, you know, or, or seeing that, right. They just, they just shot someone's grandparents. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know it hits hard. All reason is now lost at the Abernathy farmhouse. Kevin Austin screams at Calvin Newnham. They're not dead. They're not dead. Calvin Noonan screaming, screaming back, let's just get the hell out of here. Kevin Austin levels a stare and growls again. This is still 50-50. He walks back into the kitchen, kitchen with Noonan close behind. 
In the kitchen, he tears the place apart, throwing china and dishes everywhere. He finally digs out a long butcher knife from a drawer, walks back into the living room where Charlie Abernathy lies slumped and dead in his chair, slashes his throat, and shoots him again in the head. For $160, if it's 50-50. He then throws the butcher knife at Calvin Newton and says, she's not finished. You go finish her, and then we'll go. No, whispers the terrified Calvin Newton. She's already done. God damn it, glowers Kevin Austin. This is 50-50. Get in there. Like a beaten dog who cannot but obey his cruel master, Calvin Newton goes into the bedroom and, and weakly slashes Cora Abernathy's throat. Turning away from what he's done, Calvin Newton finds Kevin Austin in a whirlwind of fury and destruction, ransacking the kitchen cupboards, shattering china on the floor, overturning furniture, smashing the television, even tossing Charlie Abernathy's chair, toppling his lifeless body to the floor. Panting and furious, he throws the Abernathy's dog in the basement and locks the door. He gathers the the pistols, the butcher knife, wipes himself on a towel, takes that with him along with the 300 pitiful dollars they've managed to find in the Abernathy home and stocks out the front door, Calvin Noonan in tow. Okay, so if if anybody... um Obviously, a lot of our listeners uh, listen to podcasts, uh, true crime podcasts, and um, I know it's 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 one thing for, of course, the the loss of human life, and then when it gets to the you know to like the 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 house animals like the dog, as soon as I was panicking, I'm I'm thankful that they at least put him in the basement and they didn't they didn't do additional things to the animal. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Back in the brutal winter night, the two drive down back down the Abernathy's gravel road until they hit pavement at County Road 19. They head north until they come to the Highway 83 bypass where they turn south, travel a few miles, at which point Kevin Austin rolls down the passenger side window, throws the butcher knife, a bloody towel, a cigarette lighter he has scratched his name onto, um, all into the ditch. Calvin Noonan drives Kevin Austin to the Thunderboat, Thunderbird Motel and drops him off. It's approximately one hour since the two men knocked on the front door of the Abernathy home. 9 p.m. on a bitter cold February night in Minot, North Dakota. All of that vile activity in less than an hour. Yeah, not not even an not hour. even probably. Yeah, not even. Um, there's a lot the investigation will will kind of show in terms of the time frame. Um, the the next morning when. Abernathy's son James calls his parents. He gets a busy signal. He tries calling Charles and Cora several times over the next hour, but cannot get through. He even calls the phone company to ask if the phone is actually in use or if there's a problem with the line. His father had been having trouble with their phone lines out there, but the company, the phone company tells him the phone is not in use and it is possible the line's out. With escalating concern, James decides to drive to his parents' home. He and his wife Polly make the 10-minute drive together, when they turn onto the gravel to drive to his parents' home, James notices the mailbox is full. He also notices there are no tracks in the mailbox, no dog tracks, no footprints or tire marks leaving the home. Snow from the previous night storm had blown over everything. James knows his father's schedule to a T. Knows that every day around 10, his dad rides his three-wheeler out to the mailbox with the dog in tow. But today, the garage doors are closed. The, sn- the snow shows no evidence of his father's usual activity. He turns to his wife in the front seat of the car and says, 
there's something wrong. They haven't been out of their house this morning. I know what he must have been feeling. Ugh, quickly exiting the vehicle, anxious to check on his parents, James uses his own key to enter through the garage door. He immediately notices the door entering the home from the garage is standing wide open. His stomach in knots as he walks through the door into the kitchen. He sees the cabinets and drawers thrown open, shattered china and glassware. The television set up so that his invalid mother can watch from her bed, smashed to the ground, blood splatter on the walls, the freezer door standing open. On the dining room table, he sees the emptied contents of his mother's purse and the unresponsive phone. His father's favorite chair is not in its regular spot, which draws James into the living room where he discovers his father, neck slashed, lying in a pool of blood in front of the out-of-place chair. Horrified and afraid, he rushes to his parents' bedroom where he finds his mother lying in a bloody bed with her neck slashed as well. James yells out to Polly, I think they're both dead, and the two rush to a neighbor's home to call for help. Now... That so sad that he had to be the one to discover uh, his parents in such a way. You know, as a as a child, you um, it's expected. You know that you will have to bury your parents. You know, it's it, that's just how it. Right, that's the it's a circle of life. Um, but in this way, you know, I mean, what he must have been feeling as he sees the garage door, you know, open, the, you know, to the house, um, and then having to find this brutal crime scene. Yeah, I mean, they uh, extensive blood spattering throughout the living room wall as high as seven feet. Uh, sure. I mean, it's... Well, and you're, I mean, you're dealing with a, a neck wound. I mean, yeah. that's going to be... There's a lot of... There's a lot of blood pumping through that. I mean, of course, there's going to be blood spatter well, like I think, that. Well, yeah, and I, th- and I think that's more from probably the gunshot. The gunshot. Than, yeah, oh, that sure. was the initial yeah, that, blow. Sure. So... Authorities would show up to the crime scene, and um, we actually have a very special surprise for our listeners as part of the show. We interviewed the the state's attorney who prosecuted, uh, ultimately prosecuted this case, uh, Tom Slorby, and he's going to share a little bit with us about the crime scene. Our first guest. officer is the first one out there and he at least knew what he was getting into so he parked his patrol car out in the county road it had lightly snowed the night before and he walked in a very roundabout way uh, not any way that the uh, perpetrators would have walked in he got to the front door and Ward County's chief deputy, who was really a chief paper shuffler, comes flying out there, sirens going, and he pulls into the driveway right up to the garage. Oh, boy. Yeah, so any prints, any tire tracks would have been obliterated. Um, I did not get called until a couple hours later. Um, my office is supposed to be called immediately on any significant case. And, of course, this is a double homicide, so it's double significant. Yeah, about so as significant as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. When I got out there, the place, the house was crawling with cops, including the chief of police from Burlington, which has to be about 15 miles away from the Abernathy's, what she thought she could help. The... Kitchen area in particular was trashed. The cupboards were all opened, the contents bashed on the floor, etc. Well, I walked up to our 
chief investigator for the sheriff's office who was there, who I assumed would be in charge, and asked him two things. Why wasn't I called right away? And secondly, what are all these cops doing in there? And I had to apologize shortly because he told me, Tom, I'm not in charge. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I forgave him for that. These cops are all crunching around in that kitchen. And we got most of them out of there after that damage had already been done by them. Um, I told them to sweep up and keep all that broken stuff. Now, this is, what, 30 years ago, maybe more? Um, the forensics at that time were not such that you could identify a particular little chip of glass from a particular source, but they'd have similar microscopic characteristics. There's no way somebody could walk through there without picking up glass in their boots or shoes. Matter of fact, all the cops did. I found out later they picked out some representative samples. They didn't sweep it all up. Oh, no. Charlie was killed in the living room, Cora in the bedroom. Cora was almost invalid because she had some hip surgery. She had a walker. Now, there, Charlie is laying in front of the TV. There's a chair there in the middle of the room, which obviously didn't belong in the middle of the room, obviously belonged over in this corner way out of the way because you could see the little indentations from the, the legs of the chair over there. And I look at this chair, and it's a, a poster chair, but there's wood rails on the back side. And wow, here's blood down the back side of those wood rails. And it appeared obvious to me that Charlie was shot when he was sitting in that chair. They moved that chair over and then dumped him out of it. Now, you always worry in something like this that the killer may be someone has every reason to be there regularly. So any trace evidence left behind wouldn't be of any value. But the blood on the carpet below that blood on the back of the chair did not line up with that blood. It was a good six inches off. And I'm thinking, you don't suppose we could be lucky enough that whoever did this took their hand to the back of that chair and dumped Charlie out of it. Now, what's his handprint doing on there? Well, we found out later that the chair had been moved. The sheriff's office had just got themselves a brand new video camera big toy. And the deputy who was videoing the scene moved the chair to get a better shot. Oh. Yeah. Um, oh. Then Whoa. Aaron Rash was a one-man crime lab for the state of North Dakota back then. Only person I've ever known of that worked more hours than I did. <laughs> <laughs> he came up the next morning to process the scene. And one of the things he does is the old standard luminol test. And lo and behold, we got blood in the bathroom. Now, Cora's shot in bed. It's not her. And Charlie's out in the living room. It's not him. Well, great. Only after four or five days getting all excited about this did the chief deputy, who, quote, was the one that drove up to the garage, um, cut himself there and went in and cleaned himself up. In the crime scene. Now, you know, it's bad enough to cut yourself in a bloody crime scene. It's really bad to bleed at a bloody crime scene, for God's sake. So, you know, it's just awfully botched. So, yeah, it sounds pretty rough. Um, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, Don. So, Tom, you know, knowing, thinking ahead, you know, to, to trial, were you worried mm -hmm. that the, the condition of the crime scene could be used against the case? Well, attorneys? we had absolutely no evidence from the crime scene. The crime scene was a total shit show. Right. I, 
everybody, it sounds to me like everybody who was anybody who was on the clock, likewise or otherwise, was out there tromping through trying to figure shit out. Well, and I mean, you have to, again, I feel like a broken record when I say this. I think I've said it every time. You have to put yourself in the time frame as well. Not that it makes it okay. This does not make it okay. Well, Tom sure as hell didn't think it was okay. No, definitely not. (laughs) It's far from okay. I mean, it's, you know, but, you know, with that many people traipsing around, um, you know, I think... Just no traipsing. Can we make a rule? No traipsing on crime scenes? If you you ever show up at a crime scene, just no traipsing. Please don't. Um, But so many of these people, uh, these law enforcement officers had never seen, well, probably a homicide, let alone a double homicide. You know, so it's it's probably a little uh, curiosity as well. Again, not that that's okay. Just saying. Yeah, so... I mean, uh, there there isn't really much physical evidence, but they can from uh, ballistic findings of the bullets recovered from the bodies at the scene. They, they they do know the Abernathys were shot by two different guns, and they were both twenty two caliber. Uh, aside from that, there's very little physical evidence to show um, who who was at the scene. And, and again, it's 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 kind of a mess. Um, the Abernathy murders are the biggest news story in Minot in the winter of 1985. And naturally, law enforcement is under a considerable deal of pressure to solve this case. But again, the crime scene had revealed little in terms of specific information as to who the killers might be. Uh, the Minot Police Department, along with the Ward County Sheriff's Office, begin pursuing and investigating leads. A murder task force is established with uh, members from each of those departments, as well as BCI. That's the Bureau of Criminal Investigation. It's basically the, the state, um, the like, state police. Is it like the state? It's it's like the state police. It's it's uh, the in, in, in investigating police. If there's a, uh, you know, if there's an officer involved shooting, if there's an officer involved, um, even, oh, gosh, uh, any type of accident, you know, it's got to be a different um, agency. Um, anytime that there's a, a suicide attempt at the jail, it's always the BCI that comes in. So state police, they, they're the ones that investigate that and, um, and, and you know, can would would sure. be there to assist in, in, in definitely a case like this. Um, Captain Vernerick would, would, would head up the uh, investigative team. And uh, again, they kind of begin processing leads and looking for some connections. One of the earliest... One of the earliest pursuits, there was a very similar homicide in Bozeman, Montana. And so you, you've got to check this out. It was a murder done in the same way and within a time frame that would have made it entirely possible to have committed the murders in Minot and then committed the murders in Bozeman. Um, that was again one of their one of the earliest leads. Wow. And it even so that eventually led to um, a member of the investigative team to head out to Bozeman to look for some of the similarities, but ultimately, and they did, they pursued this as far as it would go. They looked at the weapon, they processed the ballistics and, and found out that the ballistics did not match. It was the same kind of gun. Sure. But, but not but different, but, but not, I don't, I don't know how that stuff works. Maybe you have, you have some insight, but same weapon, but the ballistics were able to confirm not the same gun. Well, when, with ballistics testing, you know, so thank goodness, this is, thank goodness this is 1985 and not, you know, say 1960 when they, I don't know when they started ballistics testing, but you know, prior to, um, because otherwise who knows, I mean, they may have, you know, these, these guys may have walked, but, um, anyway, it's each gun leaves a different impression on the, okay. Yeah. When it's shot. 
So that for us simpletons, thank you, Don. I learned that on a podcast. You learned that on a true crime podcast yourself, <laughs> and and you've shared shared that knowledge with with others. Um, some additional suspects would include a double. There was a double slashing murder also in Wyoming. Again, a very so this is like they're they're canvassing the the region. Sure, of course, looking for identifiable and similar homicides and similar murders. They figured this is a this is a this is a robbery gone wrong and they're looking for other instances where this looked to be uh, a similar situation. Well and, and high five to those agencies who I mean they all communicated well with one another because again it's 1985. You know, it's the, the technology is of course almost non-existent at they, that point. Yeah, they they would even pursue Around what there were two inmates who had escaped from a prison in New Mexico and were captured in Saskatoon, Canada, which is just north mm-hmm. of North Dakota. In Saskatchewan. And, and these were violent criminals. And in, in their initial, when they were walking through the potential timeline of these escaped inmates, well, they could have passed through Minot and did the murders. Now, eventually, they would go through the hassle of bringing these people, extraditing these guys to. My not, even though Vern in the newspapers said multiple times, look, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not these guys. We don't think it's these guys, but they still brought them in, had them extradited, extradited to my not questioned them several times. Um, and, and that, that goes nowhere. Well, what's interesting to me, why extradite them to my not? They weren't charged, you know, typically they were escaped criminals, but, but, but typically, they wanted to question them to see. Right. But typically in an extradition, um, an extradition, you know, where they would be brought back here. It, there were charges involved for just a simple questioning. Why not send the, why not send law enforcement there? So that's interesting the way they handled that. That's kind of, yeah. yeah. It, 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 internet. And then those guys, I, I don't know what, what, whatever happened to those guys, but then they waived extradition back to New Mexico sure. and we're yeah. trying to, well, just put me in prison here. Right. Oh, well, of course, <laughs> of course you want to be. Um, yeah. So they're going through, they're, of course they're going through all this, but on February 15th, Kevin Austin, this is uh, one, one week, that was, this is one week after the murders, on, on February 15th, 1985, Kevin Austin is arrested for forgery. He's riding in a car with none other than Calvin Noonan. Of course. So they're brought into the police department for questioning um, in conjunction with the forgery. Now, in that regard, Calvin Noonan had done nothing wrong. He was just driving his buddy Kevin Austin around for doing forged checks and, and making money. Um, the two had long, I, I guess, kind of had a, a thing of doing that. That's how Kevin Austin was making money. He he, sure. he was living off of forged checks left and right. Oh, oh, the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> Very different. Couldn't that now. Um, but they were, there they were questions. So dur- during this time, they've got, they've got, they asked Noonan if they can ask him questions. And evidently, um, Noonan, could have been charged with possession of marijuana, and and they said they claimed they could also charge him with like accessory to forgery or, or with being involved with the forgery, which would actually be a violation of get this, his probation. Oh. Calvin Noonan is on probation. Now, I don't know exactly if, if they knew this immediately because yes they must have because detective leo keelan is on hand leo keelan is familiar with calvin Noonan because in the previous year leo keelan along with a member 
of the United States Secret Service. I'm sorry. Did you say Secret Service? I did. The ones, you know, that that guard the president and and other uh, figures like that? The men in black, Don. Weird. So, Secret Service. Secret Service. Okay. Came here to Minot, North Dakota. Leo Keelan just happened to be the guy who would assist the Secret Service on their quest to Minot. What, what, the, what might their quest be, you ask? Well, a certain Minot citizen had sent an, a letter to a Connecticut newspaper. Here is what that letter said. Connecticut. Yes, sent this to <laughs> a Connecticut newspaper. I have, and I, and I quote, this is from the letter. So... Forgive me if you hear something in this that is terrible or offensive. This is word for word what this individual sent to this newspaper. You're just like Reagan and all the other dick suckers. It ain't my fault that nobody will give me credit. I hope you die, you son of a bitch. You probably ain't even white. Fuck you. I don't take no fucking shit. No credit, huh? Well, suck my big dick, slut. You're probably just like Reagan and goddamn nigger lover. Die, die, die. I'd like to. I'd like to cut your throat, rip it right out. Someday soon, I will kill Reagan. That's underlined. Kill Reagan. Just watch me on TV. Mondale for president. A funeral for cocksucker Reagan. That oh okay uh, that was written by Mr. Calvin Noonan the previous year. So Leo Keelan is familiar with Mr. Noonan when he comes in with Kevin Austin on this forgery charge. Okay, first of all, holy that, shit! That language. I mean, yes. I you know we uh, clearly, and especially if you know us, we're no strangers to to, to swearing. But I mean, that made. That there was, are there are words in there in there that I would never say. Yes. Oh um, my gosh. So who was this letter to? That was in October of 1984. Noonan sent that to the Easton Press. About whom? Just just, just randomly. Where he he threatened uh, he was upset about whatever they were writing. Wow. Um, they, they wow. Must, I'm assuming that they must have been a big, uh, not not a Reagan su- or, or a big Reagan supporter, a pro Reagan sure. uh, newspaper and or whatever. Noonan was not. <laughs> yeah. Not wow. not a fan. Wow. And you guys, I mean. If you've seen the movie Steel Magnolias, uh, I promise I'm bringing this around, uh, where he goes, where where she goes, I'd recognize that handwriting anywhere. That's a handwriting of a serial killer. I feel like this fits here. This it make it like looking at the handwriting actually makes makes my hand or makes me uh, shiver a little. It's it's pretty crazy to read and, and to see that and. So this is the case. Now they've they've got they've got Noonan there, and now so officers they're just they're having a conversation with him. They ask Noonan if he knows anything about two quote two old people who were killed northeast of Minot. Noonan says he does not. Officers put a lot of pressure on Noonan, telling him they will let him slide on the marijuana possession as well as any forgery charges, and they will not inform his parole officer of anything if he will cooperate with them. Noonan says, hey, I'd be glad to help, but I don't know anything. Officers continue to press on Noonan, and at least twice in this initial questioning, he asks for a lawyer, but is told by officers he doesn't need one because he's not being charged with anything at the time. Essentially, they 
So hang on they, a second. They, they, they pin him in a room and they, they kind of take turns going rounds on him. Uh, initially, they tell him that, that they, they want to know about a 357 Smith & Wesson um, that was a stolen weapon that was, that was sold. To see if he knows anything about that. And they start questioning him. And they, they, what were you doing last week, Friday night? Who, who, they, they denied him a lawyer? Like, I mean, he, according to ac- who? According to, according to Noonan, and the, according to Noonan, this is all. So in, in his, the, in his confession, he's saying that he was, he asked for a lawyer multiple well, times or. Uh, we'll get to that. But in oh, this, okay. in, in, the, in this initial meeting, as, as it's laid out from, from the paperwork that we have and, and, and in the affidavit, of course, you're going to have a Noonan side. You're going to have sure. a law enforcement Which, side. And, yeah, and somewhere in the middle, there's the truth. I but believe, they, I believe they, they call that there's two sides to every story. Indeed. Yeah. So he, he was indeed questioned several times. They, they lean again, they wanted him. They wanted to know sure. if he knew anything uh, here. And they, at that same time, then they asked, well, Hey, can we search your house? And he's like, yeah, I've got nothing to hide. Come, come search my house. And they do just a, a pretty quick search of, of, of Newnham's home. And they, they find in his pocket some spent 22 caliber what? shell casings. Uh, oh. And in his pocket. Um, and then, of course, they ask him, well, what are those doing there? And he, he tells them, well... And they also take a few knives from his house, mm-hmm. so they take they take that, and they say, "Why do you? You're on probation. Why do you? Why do you have these?" I said, "Well, I was out shooting at my parents' house with my brother. They must have fell into my pocket." Which again, it's North Dakota. It's not. It it's, is. It's a likely story. I mean, it is. Really, it, it, it could be. It, absolutely. Um, and the thing is, I, I guess even even prior to that. When he was trying to leave, Kevin Austin's getting arrested, right? He's in there. He's getting arrested. Um, Calvin Noonan, they don't have, they're not charging him with anything. Sure. Technically, you know, the, the forgeries were done by Kevin. And, right, right. Um, I, At this point, he's just... To my knowledge, you can't get in trouble if you're driving somebody who's forging a check. Um, maybe there's... A, but in this case, it doesn't seem like that's, that's the situation. So he goes to leave. And outside, when he goes to leave... Um, Werner is there at his, at his car along with a few other officers, Bob Banks and John Globota. Uh, Werner started questioning him about whether or not he might know who's shooting windows out around town. He's like, why would, and it's like, I don't, why the hell would I know anything about that? They asked him why he hangs out with somebody like Kevin Austin. And he just said, Noonan said, well, I just need some friends. Werner says, well, I'm your friend. Why don't you chat with me? Uh, and then he said, well, you know, these, this old couple that that died here about a week ago, they live just east of, of where your parents live. Do you, do you know them? Um, and do you know what you were doing last Friday? Immediately, Newton replies, I was with Kevin Austin at the Royal Fork. And then I dropped him off and went to bed. Vern says, all right, well, that's that's good. Well, let me know if you hear anything about the murders. Then he then he left. So it was it was okay, excuse me. So it was not that same day, but it was shortly after that they came to his house, asked him if they could search his house. This would be their second interaction with him, and that's when they found the twenty two shell casings in his pocket. And he says, "Well, I was out shooting trees with my brother. My brother can corroborate that. They found a knife he had in his junk drawer, and he and they asked him again, does this have anything to do with the Abernathy case?'" And he said, no, but you can take whatever you want. They took the three, 23, 22 shells and the knives, and that was it. Hmm. Um, that would be their, their second interaction. Uh, over the course of the next few months, law enforcement questions 
Calvin Noonan no fewer than 14 times. 14. Uh, over, the course, over the course of the seven months of the Abernathy murders, they would question him at least 14 times. At least seven times, officers from the Minot Police Department and Ward County Sheriff's Office came to Noonan's house. Now, they searched the house twice, once we already know about, right. where they find the 22 right. shell casings. Yep. The second time, this would be in about June, they search with a warrant. So this time, they've got a warrant. They've been, they've been, leaning, on, they've been leaning on Noonan throughout this investigation. Um, well, and a warrant has to be signed by a judge. They've got to have probable absolutely. cause. They've got to, and they've got to list specifically where... You know where they're searching. So it's, it's like they they keep they keep kind of showing up at Noonan's house. Sometimes they'll show up at his house and they say, "Well, we're friends. You know, I helped you. I helped you get out of this, and we didn't charge you with that." And they, they uh, there's this there's this this approach that they take where they're your your police officers trying to get this guy for murder, and I get you doing everything you can, but they constantly call him and say things to him like, "Well, we're friends, right? You and me, we're friends." Well, my you need, you need a good friend like me, don't you? I think it's that it's, it's remember that. when we were remember when we were friends well here let me get you a soda let me get you a pop while while you're in here talking to us thanks for coming in thanks for coming down and talking to us my friend it's just there's a lot of these little subversive manipulative and, and, and I'm not admonishing the police for sure. that it's no, just because a, it's that it's that good cop bad cop mentality they're trying to they're trying to um, loosen them up a little bit you know I mean to, they literally like like. They ask him to come down and talk to him. They ask him, okay, do you take okay. drugs? Why do you hang out with people who do drugs? Hey, well, you need good friends. Well, everybody at the police department was your friend, and they would never do anything to get you. So, but hang on a second. And I mean, yeah, and I see I see what you're saying. I, but how many times, I mean, a few times you said that he actually went down to the police department? Uh, they asked him to come down, and he so, went down willingly. So he did. So, yep, so, so he went down willingly. There so, was a few times so, he went down willingly, and then a few times, but but they kept asking him about the murders, and he sure. kept saying, like, look. I don't you know guys, what you're talking about. You, you guys are trying to get me to admit to, to something I didn't do. I feel like this is, you're harassing me. I want to help you. Here's, here's here's you know, oh, you know, Werner said, well, we want you to, to testify in this drug case. Do you know if Kevin Austin does drugs? And he's like, yes. Well, would you be willing to testify that Kevin Austin does, does drugs? Yes, I would. You know, there's all these, th- sure. all these. So he's like, yeah, this is what I know, but I don't know anything about any murders. Um, they even go to the one time, um, Vern Irk and Bob Banks show up and they just want to, and they say at his house, and they say, hey, we just want to talk as friends. To which Noonan replies, quote, okay, since I could use some friends. Um, so he let, he lets them in. And they talk about his cat, which which was, he loved his cat. And then eventually, Irk steered the um, conversation toward the murders. Why he, why are you hanging out with Kevin Austin? What do you know about the murders? Uh, and then when Noonan refuses to help, Werner gets a little upset and 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 kind of walks away. Well, hang on a second. I I I, I want to comment on the harassment sure. thing because I, I I don't know. At first, you know, when I saw that it was, uh, you know, 14 times, right? That's, that's a lot. That's, that's a lot. That's some heavy, heavy pressure. But he could have stopped answering the phone. He could have stopped going down oh, sometimes there. Sometimes he did. He could have stopped opening the door. I mean, so, so calling it harassment on his, I, on and his I'm not, part. I'm no, not suggesting no, that. No, no, yeah. no. Yep. No, I know that. Um, I'm him, him suggesting, um, Noonan suggesting that it's harassment. 
Um, and it was like, well, pal, you, you had some control on this side too. That but. would ultimately go to the Supreme Court of North Dakota, oh. for example, for, for just for the record. Oh, I love uh, his, love his, ca- his, like ca- his case of 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 being her- his claim of being harassed. Uh, there was even one time. I guess he owned some properties uh, that he managed, and he was sh- going to show people a property, and was pulled over by BCI, and said, "Hey, you're not doing that anymore. You're going to come with us and answer some questions, and oh. you're going to and you're going to listen." Wow. Um, and that was when that was, so that was when he, they indicated that they had, so that's, this, this is an interesting one. So that's what leads to, this is June. This is the warrant, right? He's he's out, like they've been working on it. And they've got some probable cause. I mean, they've got something that's tying him to it. They, they they absolutely do. By June, um, Vern had put together an affidavit and, um, sort of outlining, what had happened, of course, to um, the Abernathys. They had interviewed a number of, of potential witnesses and people who were familiar to both Kevin Austin and Calvin Noonan. And obviously, they've been talking to Noonan several times. And some of these investigating agents um, clearly had a feeling about Noonan. Uh, there was, throughout that duration, it's important to note, there was a big lull in the case. They didn't have anything. Sure. They've got no physical evidence on well, Noonan. We heard they, that. They, they, have no, they have no physical yeah. evidence from the They've got scene. a funny feeling about him. And they know that he has, um, in his past, made threats of violence and but aside from that they don't they don't have anything sure um he's got an alibi they know that him and kevin austin were hanging out together they kind of interview the various people oh i was with this person you know austin says he was with his girlfriend and um they you know officers had essentially set up a, a timeline so when he submits this affidavit, it's believed that, that the perpetrators of the homicide were acquainted with the Abernathys simply in that they knew they lived. They knew they were a, a target. They knew where they lived. Um, and, and they kind of had a plan. Sure. Um, he, he, they, they explain who Calvin Noonan is and, and, and who Kevin Austin is. It, it, it outlines everything. Well, evidently, earlier that night, Calvin Noonan and Kevin Austin went to a little restaurant known as the Royal Fork. If you're here from, if in you're from Minot. the Minot area, it was, it was lovely. Yeah, the, longer here. The, the Royal Fork w- would be sort of their planning meal. And it was the the last place many people saw both Kevin Austin and Calvin Noonan at that spot together. And of course, this is essentially where they planned it. They left from there to go and initiate the murder. So this is all outlined um, in within the Vern Erk affidavit in sure. June. They're putting together these these this this theory essentially of what happened based upon their interviews and. Um, their findings. So, and they're, yeah. So, so they're sitting, they're, they're planning. I, I think if it's any indication as to what kind of vile human beings we're dealing with, they're, they're planning the murders over a meal for what? Planning murder. They were planning robbery. Oh, planning to robbery. Be fair, oh, okay. they were, they, to okay. be fair, they were planning okay. robbery. I'm sorry. That was my misunderstanding. They were. No, it's okay. okay. They were, they were planning robbery. I may have said that too, but they, they were only planning robbery. Okay. This, this is, well, that's un- not going to make you lose your yeah. appetite. This and- is unquestionably a, a, a robbery gone wrong. Gotcha. They, they, had, they had checked the, the, the Thunderbird motel for Austin's comings and goings. They share, of course, on May 3rd is when they, they, they find. Um, the three spent rounds is where Noonan tells them all oh, they, they fell, they fell into his pocket when he was target shooting. Man, I, I go target shooting a lot, Don. Um, I don't know if I'm doing something right or wrong, but I've never just had shells fall into my pocket. Uh, I, I'm sure it's possible. I but have, three of them? I mean, three you just, of them, I, I have had, I, have, I guess it's, it's uh, come on. When I was, I when know. I was getting my concealed, um, carry, uh, permit, I, I actually had to go down the top of my sweatshirt. 
So it's possible. It's possible. It seems it seems far fetched, so, but yeah. Par- part of what helped really put the um the affidavit the. the the search warrant over is they get well they, they've got this history of violence and, and something else too is was that in june of 82 this is obviously several years prior uh but the police department had actually received complaints before about Noonan, where he threatened to kill his fellow employee rodney hunter by stating he would kill hunter and then if hunter turned his back he would stick a knife in him another employee also stated Noonan had threatened that he was going to shoot hunter with a shotgun um, so this is all, again, all in the warrant. They execute the search warrant upon his premises. They dig up, they, they dig the place up. Um, they, they tear, they tear his, they tear his furnace apart. Like they're, they're, they're turning his, his residence inside and out in his mind. And what he says, Noonan, is that they ransacked his house. Well, they, they, if, if they're going into his furnace, that has to be listed on the warrant. They can't yep. just do that out of willy-nilly. So obviously pulled they out, had... Yeah, pulled out his drawers, digging, sure. d- dig up his yard, and, and the, the search turns up no murder hmm. weapons and little, if anything, that can be used against Newman. Oh, man. But the persistence did not wear off. By now, um, the team that was just that was initially six people and and lots of overtime going out to invest this Mm -hmm. case has dwindled down to three. They were able to get help from the FBI from none other than, and and this will come up a a little bit more later, but they get from the special, the specialist behavioral science um, criminal investigation unit with the FBI in which the FBI takes, they take all of the evidence that has been compiled Everything, but none of the sus- n- none of the suspect lists, none of the theories. Nope. Literally, they take the raw evidence and they compile a profile. So, of the, who, so there's no chance of being biased in any way. Correct. The criminal behavioral unit does not want any bias, and that was considered a really big deal and a possible evolution for this case. This is kind of also when Tom Slorby decides like he wants to be more directly involved with what is going on with this case and getting somebody arrested. Uh, they they kind of put out this, they, and they, they share that. Look, we know, and, and here's what we know. And they, they share essentially this, this profile that was created from the unit. Fresh on the heels of the psychological profile from the FBI, investigators had a newfound inspiration, and one of them had... A new idea. Let's hear more from our interview with Tom Slorby. Ultimately, counting me, there were three police detectives directly involved. Two from the PD and then Vernon. And each of them had some assistance here and there. And basically, everybody eventually developed their favorite suspects with not much to base it on, not much at all. And what we did is went on and put on fake news conferences. And that was Vern's goofy idea. And we released a little tidbit of guesswork that we knew was accurate. And we were very careful not to make some statement that we weren't positive. And the first thing was that came immediately to our minds was, oh, we got tire tracks. We got tire tracks. They don't know we don't, but they know it was snowing. <laughs> okay. Sure. 
So we first, you know, told, a press conference said we had good tire impressions, etc. Then we made sure that each of our group of suspects saw us checking out their cars. And then we went back later to see if they had brand new tires on their cars, okay? Um, and we added, in the next conference, we'd repeat that and add another tidbit, like, well, there were, there's more than one. We didn't say two or three. We just said more than one, adding to the tire tracks we had. And we were thinking maybe this will flush them out because we subliminally put in there that even though there's more than one, one of them, one of them is a primary perpetrator, is certainly uh, the most culpable, suggesting against it, not us suggesting, hoping we planted the suggestion, that one of them says, oh boy, they're almost ready to arrest me, I better go in and claim to be the not-so-guilty one, knowing full well that the one who comes in would probably be the most guilty one, had the most of the game, and that's how Newton got flushed out. So law enforcement continues um, to press on Calvin Noonan. In, in fact, they even ask him to take lie detector tests, which he agrees to. He takes three. Three. Three lie detector tests. He passes the lie detector tests. At this point, State's Attorney Tom Slorby gets more actively involved in the investigation. He too questions Newnham at home, telling him that he was now heading up the inve- quote heading up the investigation because he felt the police would never get the answers because they don't ask questions the right way. And that's coming from Newnham. That's carbon. That's coming yeah. from Slorby. Oh. yeah, that's Newnham's interpret or Newnham's quoting Slorby. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Slorby leans hard on Newnham, pressuring him to admit to being with and getting high with Austin the night of the murders. He even tells Newnham that he can get him part of the reward money for testifying against Austin, and that he is always willing to cut a deal on a case that could bring him into the spotlight. Again, this is all based on Newnham's testimony uh, regarding his interactions with the police. Uh, at this point, this is you're, you're looking into the midsummer months, June, July, in here, August. There's now a twelve thousand dollar reward in the case, uh, and and now that they've got the psychological and behavioral profile, they recall much of the task force, and they begin to build a much stronger case uh, because. Um, Newnham seems to fit a lot. Some of these, some of the profile that they find. Um, so members of the task force, um, keep the pressure on Newnham, um, questioning him repeatedly at his home and at the police station. They promised Newnham many deals, telling him they are his friends and would stand by him. Newnham eventually, who was tired of the harassment at one point responds that he has come to the conclusion that the only friend in the world he has is his cat. And he didn't need friends like them, the police. Now, the 13th round of questioning takes place at the Minot Police Department. On this occasion, officers show Calvin Newnham crime scene, crime scene photos from the Abernathy murders. Seeing the photographs, something begins to crack in Newnham. And he asks what the penalties for murder would be. So that would tell me, uh-oh. He's thinking. He's panicking. He's, yeah. yeah, he is. Um, he's told that he could maybe cut a deal for only 20 years in prison. Noonan says he wants to find out what Tom Slorby would give him 
before he says anything. And detectives rush to get the attorney to the police station, who, I shit you not, is golfing and is brought in from, from golfing to be present at Noonan's request because these guys really, again, strongly feel they're about to get a confession right. out of Noonan. And so not only is it customary, um, you know, I believe Tom even mentioned how it's it was his rule. You know, they they call him, you know, right away. That's that's just kind of how it works. But the funny part is that Noonan requested him to be there too. Like, yeah. I mean, what? Dude, you do realize that he's not actually your friend. You know, he's the one that's going to be prosecuting it but he oh was well. um keelan told him he was going to be a hero for helping him solve the case and if tom slurby tried to go hard on on Noonan, they'd testify for him and try to do everything they can to help uh, it's, uh, and and uh, he also wanted to know what is going to happen to my cat you know what if, if i were in a similar position i would i would be concerned about my dogs and i would ask he was he was promised that he could keep his cat as long for as long as he was staying at Ward County Jail. I'm sorry, um, the cat at the jail. The cat at the jail. Ah, it's kind yes. of a kind of a somewhat legendary kind it is, of little, it is. Little, little tale. <laughs> it is actually a legend. It's it's still passed down. So, um, Slorby shows up and kind of he promises Noonan a lot he promises him no more than 20 years for each murder and that the time can be served consecutively he tells Noonan he can trust the deal because he knows the judge in the case will support him 100 percent he tells Noonan he's glad that Noonan broke down because if Kevin Austin had broke first he would have to crucify Noonan and go easier on Kevin and that he liked him a lot more than he liked Kevin he even promises Noonan that he can bring his cat with him when he goes to Ward County Jail. Hmm. Uh, they gave Noonan a lot of reassurance, even in, in giving these... Noonan, um, Noonan still thought he was going to get to go to work. And they let him call in late to work. That The day, uh, the day of, the, yes. the, day of the, the confession? Yes. I shit you not. The day of the conven- <laughs> confession. It was close to time for him reporting to work. He asked Slurby if he could call and say he was going to be late. Uh, and they said, yeah, go ahead. And he did. He asked him about the cat. He said he could take him home. Uh, they 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 give him pizza. They give him soda. Well, and, and um, part of that is that's that's a that's tactics. Oh, I absolutely. Mean, you know, of course, as, it's as tactics. far as that goes, absolutely yeah. tactics. Uh, then they get the tape recorder and they start asking him questions. According to Noonan, they get a little bit mad. They had to turn the tape recorder off um, because they were. It, the the questions weren't unfolding in, in the way they wanted them to. And and Slorby will kind of mention that one of the officers seemed like he was offering details to Noonan in the questioning. And you've got to let, you've got to let the suspect provide those details. Yeah. You can't fill in the blanks. You can't, you, you can't fill in the, bl- the blanks for them. Um, and, 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 you know, you hear that from Slorby and you hear it from Noonan. So sure. it's, it's, you know. Well, and, and furthermore, you can't press them on the blanks that you filled in for them. You know, you can't press, they couldn't press Newtum on those holes, you know, that had been filled in for him, if that makes, if that makes sense, uh, you know, because that, that they aren't his words. Right. Um, for, for whatever reason right here, he's not right here. And I, and I can't quite figure out why um, he's not immediately charged for murder right here. Um, they... They they arrest him for detox. 
Um, and, and, and so they, 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 they arrest him under what's called a detox and they keep him in a solitary confinement with his, with his cat. So detox is, is typically, you know, alcohol or drug induced, sure. right? And it is not actually a charge. Uh, so at any point, um, if, if someone were, um, I, I, for lack of a better word, arrested, yeah. even though it's not, it's not a charge, um, for detox, uh, Typically, a sober adult could come and sign for you. So it's interesting that that was initially. That's what, that's what happened initially. Because right. um, I, I mean, he could have he could have walked out. So the following day, and I'm guessing this is maybe they wanted to detox him and get another statement while after he was detoxed. Um, perhaps I, I don't know if that, that that increases the validity of of his admission that you know he he did these murders. Well, he must have, I mean, he must have been intoxicated in some way, um, you know, because if they're waiting for him to, you know, quote unquote, sober up, sure. you know, then absolutely they're going to want to make sure that he's sober before he gives that. Otherwise, I mean, if I were, you know, an attorney, which not even close to one, but if I were, I would definitely, you know, bring that up. Like, well, my, my client was intoxicated or whatever, and, and you pushed him on this. So, I mean, makes sense, really, if you think about it. Yeah, it's, um, so the, so... They've got him. He 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 does he does admit to everything after the detoxification. They arrest him. Um, he is charged with murder. They shackle him up. Now, uh, a question comes up in this is they they spent seven months leaning on Calvin Noonan. Well, why just Noonan? Because Kevin Austin was arrested for forgery and sent to the pen. So during all of this investigation, Kevin Austin just sitting there in jail. They only had Noonan to to work on. Um, well, and not only that, I mean, they could he could have been questioned at any time, but. You got nothing but time with him, you got nothing right? But time. So build your case, build, get everything you need to, right? And and yeah, and 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 Newnham's kind of the, yeah again the one you have access to. Um, they even they 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 shackle him up and they set up this. They set it up so that when Austin is being transferred from one spot to another, that he sees Newnham all shackled up and being arrested. They they intentionally designed that so that Austin sees. Um, Calvin Noonan is under arrest, it's obviously to freak him mirrors. out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so now Tom Slorby is armed with a confession, uh, although they don't have all of the physical evidence. Um, they, they, they would eventually, after lots of canvassing, there was volunteer, tons of community volunteer effort, lots of people who canvassed uh, the, the highways and byways after getting the full story through Newnham's confession of, of where they drove to and of how the weapons were disposed of, as we kind of heard in the front end of the story. They do find the knife, they find the bloody towel, they find, and they find with it a lighter with the word Austin scratched into it. Where they tossed it out of the window. Where, I bet. where it was tossed out of the window. So I was wondering about that. I was wondering if they had, if they had found the towel and, and stuff. So that's hmm, so good. With, with Austin having um, already being in jail and they've got Noonan who uh, is the one who has admitted to the murders and, and he, again, so the story as I, as I told it, on the front end of this, that is all written from the testimony, the interrogation, and the admittance of Calvin Noonan. So hmm. that whole story that we put together of, of them coming into the murder scene, um, that's based, of course, 
on the evidence, but also um, largely in, from Noonan's testimony, uh, which was in, in court as well as on record with the officers. Um, so Noonan is charged with murder. He's convicted. And um, then comes the, tr- the, the trial for Kevin Austin was scheduled for the following year. Um, Kevin Austin, there would be an initial appearance that he would make in court. The key witness in this is Calvin Noonan. Sure, because he's rolling on his buddy. He's, right? he's, rolling, he's rolling on his buddy. As this progresses, it was within a couple of weeks, uh, uh, shortly after the initial appearance, where he's kind of arraigned, and they, they set up, you know, they, 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 set, they set this all, they set it all up. Calvin Noonan backs out and refuses to testify against Kevin Austin. Now, without any actual physical evidence to put Kevin Austin at the scene, although they could put him together before the murder and after it, he could not put Kevin Austin on the scene. And so Slorby makes a pretty dramatic and unpopular, although understood, decision, and he drops the charges against Kevin Austin. Kevin Austin would remain would would serve out another month or so in jail for his forgery, and Kevin Austin would walk free. He would be a free man, having almost faced the court of law, but at the last minute, Noonan refuses to testify. And that's frustrating because you've got him, you've got Noonan confessing to everything and saying that Austin did all this. But if he doesn't testify in a court of law, it's not enough. It's, it's not the enough. Corpus it's, delecti. And and it's the 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 confession and the the even the affidavits from the law enforcement officers aren't submissible or aren't admissible. Not yeah. submissible. The wrong word. Admissible into well, court. Because it's at that point it's just hearsay. So Noonan convicted, going to jail for the murders. Austin does his time in f- for forgery, and he eventually just gets, he's out to live his free life. Just like that. Just like that. Only one of these guys in um, 85, 86 who did these murders, uh, unfortunately, gets, gets, gets prosecuted. So uh, that concludes this episode of Midwest Murder. That's it. That's our Jonah. Well, (laughs) the story, my friends, doesn't quite end there. But you'll have to wait until next time to see what happens in the case of the Abernathy murders. Wow. Big thanks again to CJ Wynn, who wrote our intro. Check out her book, uh, Wilder Intentions, available on Amazon. A uh, huge thank you as well to Dr. Sean-Ann Tangney, whose contributions as a researcher and a writer helped shape this show. You can find her work here on the Good Talk Network on Myth America. Midwest Murder is available every other Monday. Catch us on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere that you can find podcasts. You can find Midwest Murder. And please, 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 please take a minute. Rate, rate, review. Give us that review. Please, please, We're please, pushing please. it. And we'll have more. We have more from Tom Slorby. And again, more to this story. I can't 
I can't, my, my jaws, my jaws hanging open. I like it's brutal. Our first two parter, our first two parter folks. We'll see you back in a few weeks. Thank you. Thank you.